Well, let me open up for us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that this word is the inscripturated revelation of him. He is the word. And so we come to learn of him. We come to listen to him. You have now revealed yourself to us in these last days in him. And so give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to obey. Lord, allow us to receive this word in a way that honors you and in a way that builds our faith. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to give you a pop quiz today, New England pop quiz, and I'll admit it's probably a difficult pop quiz. It has three questions. Question number one, who's the most famous theologian in New England history? Now, you can debate that, uh, but there's only one right answer. Who's the most famous theologian in New England history? Just think about it. You don't have to yell it out. I'd say Jonathan Edwards. That would be my my guess. So question number two, of all of his works, and the bulk of those are contained in over 16,000 pages in 26 volumes published by Yale University Press, which of those works was his magnum opus, his greatest work, the one that he contemplated the most? Now, that's a tough question. That's a tough question. I'm guessing, has anyone read all 26 <laughs> volumes? Just a show of hands. Okay, no. Just 25. Just 25. I thought Matt might be close. That's right. He would say that the thing he spent the most time contemplating resulted in a work called A Treatise on Religious Affections. It was written in 1746, almost 300 years ago. In fact, Edward said, it is a subject on which my mind has been peculiarly intent ever since I first entered on the study of divinity. Now, here's the last question. And if you know the answer to this one, I'll just sit down and let you give this sermon this morning. What question does that treatise on religious affections, what question does that seek to answer? Here it is. Edward says, and I quote, There is no question of greater importance to mankind, and that is that it more concerns every individual person to be well resolved in than this. What are the distinguishing qualifications of those that are in favor with God and entitled to his eternal rewards? Or, which comes to the same thing, what is the nature of true religion? What is the nature of true religion? End of quote. In simple English, Edwards was asking this. What kind of faith truly saves? What's it look like? What kind of faith truly saves? Now, I think Edwards is right. There's no question of greater importance. Would you agree with that? There's no question of greater importance than to understand the nature of true saving faith. In fact, we could say it this way. Which kind of faith is the means by which God's forgiveness is conferred to the sinner, resulting in justification? 
This morning we want to interact on that question. Our text will help us to interact on that question. And the goal this morning is that perhaps in answering this question, the Lord will help rescue us from the ever-increasingly popular demon faith that can never save. It can never save. And so would you turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Let me pick it up in verse 27. Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter had just confessed Jesus as Messiah as the Son of Man promised in Daniel chapter 7. Many would say that it's the pivot point of Mark's whole gospel. Now up to this point, we've seen nothing but unbelief from Jesus' countrymen, the Jews, despite his ministry, despite his miracles, despite his power, despite his authoritative teaching, they have rejected him. They have not truly believed. But now Peter confesses, which sets off really another pilgrimage in Mark's gospel into unbelief. Only this time we would see, if we continued our study uh, through Mark, we would see that the focus of the unbelief is on the disciples themselves, who, despite Jesus' clear prediction, which he will make two more times, remained clueless. So what does he predict? He said, well... The Son of Man will suffer. He'll suffer many things. He'll be rejected. He'll be killed. So first he predicted his death. And then he said, but after three days, he'll rise again. So he predicted his resurrection. And verse 32 says that he was plain spoken. He was absolutely clear. In fact, their subsequent unbelief which if you read through to the end of chapter 10, you would, it's almost comedic. They just continue not to get it. Their subsequent unbelief would be utterly defenseless, for there was no confusion about what Jesus said or what Jesus meant. But I want you to notice verse 33. Their response through Peter, remember Peter's the leader of the pack, their response is this. Peter rebukes Jesus. I don't know, that's kind of funny to me. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? It's kind of like your five-year-old giving you the business, you know. Uh, He rebukes Jesus. And while the content of that rebuke is not revealed, I think it can be inferred from Jesus' counter-rebuke. First, in general, Jesus says, your rebuke is demonic. He says, get behind me, Satan. 
In other words, Peter's rebuke was really the counsel of the devil himself. And then second, and more specific, Peter's rebuke is cross-blocking, cross-inhibiting. You see, it's fair to assume that Peter and his disciples are not reacting to Jesus' prediction of his resurrection. No, they're reacting to Jesus' prediction of his death. That is, they're reacting, if you will, to the cross. Now remember, Satan, Satan knows Scripture. He quoted it to Jesus on the Mount of Temptation, and no doubt he knew Genesis 3. So what did Satan know? He knew that the cross was where his head was going to be crushed, where he would be mortally wounded. He knew that. And so Peter, obviously doing Satan's bidding at the moment, is trying to get Jesus to circumvent the cross. And this leads to Jesus' Sunday school class on faith. Let's pick it up in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now Christ has predicted his death, to which the disciples have dramatically opposed. So now Jesus turns, if you will, the guns on them. For to know Christ is to know Christ in his death. It's to know the fellowship, as Paul says in Philippians 3, the fellowship of his sufferings. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. That's the first thing. Deny himself. You know, when I think about our American culture, and I'm not going to be one of these old guys that say, you know, in the good old days, because in the good old days it was exactly the same. When I think about our American culture, I'm not sure there are two nastier words than deny yourself. It runs so counter to the way that you and I are programmed, doesn't it? We don't like the idea of denying ourselves anything. And Jesus starts off, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. I think it includes denying your wants, denying your preferences, denying your right to self-determination, denying your supposed right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, denying the American dream and your participation in it, denying your hopes, your plans, your goals. In short, it means death to your life. And that comes clear in the next phrase. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Now remember, the cross in these days was not a piece of jewelry or some obscure reference to a generic hardship. That's not what the cross was. No, the cross was an instrument of capital punishment. It was an instrument of death. It was the major means 
of execution in the Roman Empire. Now, in our nation's past, we had various means for executing criminals. Probably the most often employed in our history was hanging. In fact, there's a tree on the Boston Green. If you ever take a tour, the guide will tell you this. There's a tree right on the Boston Green that was used for public hangings and not so long ago. Big, big gathering. Even children would come and see the criminal be hung, and that tree is still there. So if Jesus had spoken in our day, he might have said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his rope. And we would have gotten the idea. You use a rope for hanging. You use a cross to execute criminals. That's what it was used for. There was no question. There was no ambiguity. And by the way, it would be the means of Jesus' own death, wouldn't it? He's just predicted his death. This is how he's going to die. He's going to die on a cross. And so he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Jesus is demanding their death. He's demanding that they follow him in death. He demands that their life be of no account, that their life no longer be dear to themselves for his sake. He demands that they hate those nearest and dearest to them compared to their love and devotion to him. He demands that they present themselves on the altar of burnt offering as a living and holy sacrifice whose only mantra is, not my will, but thy will be done. He demands their death. It's the part of faith that actually saves. Bonhoeffer said it well, didn't he? He said, when Christ calls a man... He bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Paul said it better. I have been crucified with Christ. See, we're sharing in his death by faith. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. I know this is hard stuff. It's hard stuff. But Jesus helps us get our heads around it by defending this death demand. First with its absolute necessity, and then with the grounding for that necessity. So let's pick it up in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. First, the necessity of death, of denying oneself and of taking up one's cross. And Jesus' logic is pretty simple. I think it goes something like this. You can't live unless you first die. 
You can't live unless you first die. Or we could say it like this. The path to life is death. Now, by the way, this isn't a radical idea. This is how it works in nature. I mean, already, if you're from New England, you know the leaves start to turn when? Now. Now, (laughs) in August. uh, We've got a lot of our interns in the NETS program, and they come from a lot of them come from south of the Mason-Dixon line. We were having a meeting yesterday in our, one of our facilities, and they, one of them looked out, and to their horror, they saw the leaves were changing. They said, is, is that tree that color, or are the leaves actually changing? I said, no, the, it's August. The leaves are changing. You, you're, in, you're in Vermont now, buddy. Uh, we experienced this. The leaves are turning, and soon it will be winter, which is a kind of a metaphorical death. C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, cooked it up nicely, didn't he, with that idea of winter being a metaphorical death. And it'll last for several months. I'm in Vermont, five to six months. In Maine, what is it, nine or ten months? But then comes spring and summer. And what do we see? Life. Life. Even pagan religions understand that. They get that. They have all sorts of rites of spring. You're thinking of Stravinsky's symphony, rites of spring. It's a pagan work. But they're getting it. He's getting it. There is something happening. There was death And now there's life. The path to life was through the winter. It was through death. Or how about uh, uh, your garden? Some of you, I'm sure, are gardeners here. Sue and I are are gardeners. We have uh, uh, raised gardens, three, four by 11 raised gardens. And I don't know why it always surprises me. But every year it surprises me. We fill those gardens with seeds. They're, they're, they're nondescript. And some of them are just tiny. You can blow them away. They're dead. And we plant those seeds in the ground. And I, I say to myself, nothing's going to happen. I mean, this is ridiculous. How can anything happen from planting this little wispy thing into the ground? And yet... Every year there is a harvest. We get peas and beans and carrots and broccoli and okra and zucchini. And they all come from those little dead inglorious seeds, don't they? From death to life. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Jesus said, whoever saves his life, that is, refuses to die, whoever saves his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels, Jesus said, shall live. The path to life is death. The only path to life is death. And now Jesus underscores that truth 
I believe, with three substantiations. Let me reread verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus argues from the extreme. Suppose someone were to gain the whole world. I think you could say, suppose somebody is a model of, of, of saving his life, the ultimate model of saving his life, and he gains the whole world. Suppose that were the case. What then? Jesus says it does him no good, for he violated the maxim that only death brings life. So even if he gained the whole world, he still forfeits his soul. He still loses his life. His temporary gain turns out to be his eternal loss. And Jesus continues in verse 37. Let me reread that. It says, For what can a man give in return for his soul? Gaining the world still brings death, and gaining the world can't buy life. Jesus argues as a businessman. Remember what the Beatles said in the 60s, 60 years ago? Money can't buy me love. Yeah, that's right. And so too, money can't buy me life, can it? It's not for sale. Life's not for sale. Gaining the whole world, saving my life, only earns me eternal death. Life comes only through death. His death, which we embrace through our death, which is a component of saving faith. And finally, Jesus concludes his support of the death demand in verse 38. Let me reread that. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see, being ashamed of Jesus and his words in, his, in this perverted world is, is a practical way, I believe, of describing someone who's holding on to their life, someone who is unwilling to lose their life for Christ's sakes and for the gospel. And Jesus is saying that that unwillingness to die, that unwillingness to deny oneself and take up one's cross, which would be manifested in not being ashamed of Christ and his words, that that unwillingness brings judgment. In other words, if you're ashamed of Jesus now, he says he'll be ashamed of you then on the day when he comes in his glory to judge the world in righteousness. Now, speaking of judging the world in righteousness, that segues us nicely to our final verse, verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I was tempted just to chop that verse off. In fact, in the first outline that I sent to Scott for the bulletin, I didn't include it. And then God convicted me because it's clearly a part of this passage, but it's also a difficult verse to translate. So what on earth is this verse saying? Well, there are numerous translations, but I think for our purposes we can narrow it down to three. The first and probably 
the most popular currently is that Jesus is referring to the glory that the disciples, or at least three of the disciples, will witness through his transfiguration, which immediately uh, follows in chapter 9. I, have, I just have problems with that, that interpretation, even though it's, it's fairly popular right now. I mean, it doesn't make sense why all the buildup. I mean, is Jesus really saying this dramatic thing, you won't taste death until six days from now? Because that's when the transfiguration occurs. I'm not saying that's impossible, but it, the drama of his statement doesn't sink to me with that interpretation. A perennial favorite, this is a second interpretation, is, a, is relating it to final glory, Jesus' second coming, as we refer to it. Now, no doubt, he will come in the glory of his Father with power at that time. No problem with that. But again, the death idea is sort of the problem. To take that point of view, because he says that some who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. To take that point of view, you, you really have to do something different with death. It has to be a, a metaphorical or spiritual kind of death. Uh, he's saying something like this, you won't taste spiritual death or true death until I return. Again, that just seems like a stretch to me. I can't really sink that easily with what seems to be Jesus' import here. There's a third interpretation. Uh, it's the one that I choose. It's, it's not the most popular, but it's consistently one that's offered up. And that is that it's referring to the judgment on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now certainly we have to quickly say Jesus did not come in person. But there's good evidence, like Matthew 10.23, uh, that makes clear that that was a coming nonetheless. And it was a coming in power. And it was a profound kingdom event. And it was something that occurred in the lifetime of some of those who were standing there listening to Jesus on that day. But what is our point? I don't want to get bogged down. And if you don't agree with me, it's fine. I'm leaving after the service. <laughs> But what is the point? Regardless of your interpretation, it's this. We've said that the foundation of the gospel is death. The foundation of gospel faith is death, just as Jesus died. I'd like to suggest that the culmination of gospel faith is glory. The hope of glory, we're told. Which Jesus displayed, might I argue, when he came back in 70 A.D. to judge the nation, to put an end to sacrifice and offering, and to commence the time of the Gentiles, the age of the church, the kingdom, his kingdom on earth, where his glory now resides, within the church, until that day. What I mean to say is that gospel faith identifies fully with Jesus' death, and ultimately with Jesus' resurrection, with his glory. So where does that leave us this morning? What kind of faith 
actually saves. As Edwards said, it's the only question that matters, really, when you boil it down. I would call it gospel faith. Gospel faith. It's a faith that identifies fully and happily and unashamedly with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You see, it's possible to have what the Bible calls demon faith. You remember James chapter 2, where the demons are described as orthodox? They believe that God is one. You recognize that, don't you? God is one, that's the Shema. That's from Deuteronomy 6. It's a Hebrew word for listen. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You see, the God of Scripture is the only one. He's exclusively God. None of the gods of the surrounding nations are God. They're all false gods. Only the Lord is God. And the demons confess that. And the Bible says in James chapter 2, they tremble. They shudder. But they're lost. They're orthodox. They believe the right things. But they're lost. They don't know Jesus Christ. Theirs is not a gospel faith. They haven't identified with the death of Christ Personally, They haven't identified with the glory, ultimately, of the resurrection of Christ personally. You see, it's, it's possible to mentally assent to the truth of the gospel, but not actually to have the gospel. Some would say it's, it's possible to profess faith, but not possess faith. To not be truly identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's possible to believe as the demons do, but never actually lose your life. Give up your life. Yield your life for Christ's sake and the gospels. It's possible to do many of the things that Christians do without really forsaking the world. And all of its lusts. Met with individual this past week. I'm not the senior pastor anymore, but I'm still on staff. The guy keeps me around for special holidays and that sort of thing. Bring him out, show him off. Uh, no, we've got a great relationship. I'm delighted to be on Mitch's staff. I really am. This fellow's been a member of our church for decades, decades. Marriage is crumbling. I'm, I'm dear friends with him, good friends with him, good friends with his wife. I don't think he knows Christ. And I told him that when we met this past week. I said, I love you. I am terrified of the prospect that you have demon faith. I don't know your heart. 
It's not for me to know. But I'm, I'm, I'm imploring you to consider whether indeed yours is demon faith and not gospel faith. He's interacting with me on it. We're going through the book of 1 John together. I'm wondering about you. I don't know you. I have no preconceived ideas. It would be hard for me to believe that there's not at least one person in this room today who has a demon faith who's never really yielded their lives, never really lost their lives, a lot of church activity, but down in their souls, still holding on. Their mantra is not, not my will, but thy will be done. I want you to think about that. What an awful thing What an awful thing to come to the end of the road and hear Jesus say, Depart from me, the cursed one, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I never knew you. I never knew you. It's worth asking the question. It's worth testing yourselves, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, to see whether or not You're in the faith. And if you are, that will be cathartic for you. And if you're not, that will be salvific for you. Let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to do that. And if gospel faith is yours, if you're here today, you're saying, okay, I'm listening to you, Wes. A little heavier than I was hoping for, but... I'm trying to follow, and uh, of course I'm not perfect, but I've yielded my life to Christ. I identify with him as my Savior. I identify with his death. I identify with his resurrection. I'm not ashamed of him. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I know I could be a better witness, but I'm not ashamed of him. If that gospel faith is yours then I just have one word to say to you. Rejoice. Your name is written in heaven. Whatever the loss you've experienced or will experience, whatever the suffering you've borne or will bear, it's not even worthy. It's not even worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed. You see, you, dear believer, shall live forever, the Bible says. You shall live forever with unabated joy. You shall live forever in irrepressible light. You shall live in a community with never-ending and never-failing love. And you shall live forever with indescribable delight and and pleasure in Thy presence, the psalmist says, is fullness of joy. At the right hand are pleasures forever. We will live in the presence of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. And so I say to you, rejoice. 
Rejoice in the one who came to earth and yielded his life, as the old hymn says, in atonement for sin. Rejoice in the one who denied himself and suffered many things, who was rejected by even his own and finally killed, but on the third day rose again from the dead, and he did it all for you. As the apostle says, he was delivered up for your transgressions, and he was raised for your justification. Hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Rejoice in the good times. Rejoice in the pain. Rejoice when love is in the air. Rejoice when you're betrayed. Rejoice when you're feeling good. Rejoice even in death. For our Savior knows it all. He's lived it all. And He's coming back. As he did in 70 A.D., he's coming back to judge the world and to eternally rescue his people from sin and death. Hallelujah. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Rejoice.